Welcome, friends, to the next round of episodes from Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast. In these episodes, I'll be speaking with Becky Fleckner about Viola Spolin's Improvisation for the Theater. Becky is an actor, educator, artist, and producer based in Philadelphia, and she'll soon be seen as Littlestone in the recorded production of Eurydice from Allen's Lane Theater, directed by my wife Shannon Hill, which is part of the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. Becky is also the co-founder of Artist in Place, a weekly online variety show that features actors, musicians, poets, and a host of other artists. I was lucky enough to meet Becky two years ago, and we've become very good friends since then. When I asked Becky to be on the podcast and to pick which book we would talk about, she quickly chose Improvisation for the Theater. Becky said she wanted to analyze it through the lens of a teacher, since Spolin's theories have had a strong influence on her own teaching methodologies. Improvisation for the theater is about improv, but it's also about theater as a whole and what it can do for people. It's about teaching, but it's also about breaking down internal barriers to be an organic storyteller. And it's about expanding your knowledge, but it's also about expanding your ability to experience the environment around you and respond to the problems that arise as effectively as you can. So while these episodes may be geared towards teaching theater, I know this information will be useful for you no matter your realm of expertise as a theater artist. Before we dive into the podcast, I also want you to be aware of a few names and terms that are used in this first episode. That way, if there's a person or concept you're unfamiliar with, you can have a chance to get acquainted. I'll be putting links in this episode's description for a little more info if you want it. We talk about Anne Bogart, artistic director and co-founder of The City Company, who is well known for her work in developing the viewpoints technique for theater. We also talk about Stanislavski, a late 19th century, early 20th century Russian who developed an acting system that many modern techniques are based on. This system is also known as the method. And if you tuned in to our last episodes, you would have heard David Huynh and me talk about the method a lot. We also mentioned Kristen Linkletter, a vocal coach, teacher, actor, director, and theorist who wrote several books on voice and theater. Unfortunately, Linkletter passed away in June of this year. One of Spolin's terms that we discuss is approval-disapproval. Spolin writes that approval-disapproval means our self-awareness is interrupted with a need for a favorable comment or interpretation from an authority figure. Hand-in-hand with that is a fear of disapproval from that authority, or that approval won't even be given. She says we're categorized from birth with good or bad, and that, quote, we see with others' eyes and smell with others' noses, end quote. There are a lot of other terms and ideas and theories in this book, and if you're ever interested in getting it for yourself, in the description of this episode will be a link for a place where you can order it from. Okay, I've talked enough. Now, on to the first episode of Improvisation for the Theater, featuring Becky Fleckner. Becky, you are a local Philadelphia actor, educator, artist. Thank you so much for being on today. Um, And you're more than welcome to tell the people a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Pat. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was so cool. You, you texted me up and you're like, hey, I have an idea. And I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. 
Awesome. Because <laughs> it'd be weird if you said you hated it. <laughs> That's true. Then why would I be here? Why That'd would you be, be here? Silly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a local Philadelphia actor and uh, theater educator. Um, I'm not a, na uh, excuse me, a native of Philadelphia. I actually moved here from uh, New England, uh, New England area. And um, in that time, in my lifetime as a theater maker, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in theater, um, fine and performing arts concentration in theater to be exact. <laughs> um, and I have a master's degree in theater education. Um, I have been a classroom teacher at a private school uh, for theater, public speaking, dance, um, and that's it. Just theater, public speaking, and dance, but two sessions of theater. So theater 101 and theater 102. Um, and uh, I also now teach in the Philadelphia area as a teaching artist. Um, which is a fancy way to say they get to pay me a lot less <laughs> for my degree. <laughs> uh, but I don't work in a, in a school system. Um, so I, uh, I am a, technically a working actor who also teaches classes. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it, especially for the second book ever that we're talking about for Rooms and Reckonings. Um, and if for anyone who is new to Rooms and Reckonings, this is a podcast where we're hoping, while Becky and I talk about improvisation for the theater today, that you'll get something out of it, whether you're uh, a professional actor, new to the craft, a teacher, a director, um, and uh, we are, I'm looking forward to a really fun discussion about it because there, again, there's so much in this book. It really is. She, yeah. she was long-winded. <laughs> yeah, but you know what the funny thing is? I, as I was taking notes for this uh, book and for these episodes, I found myself in certain sections literally just writing down word for word what we sh what she would say in certain paragraphs. I was like, I I would summarize this, but she's she's being pretty succinct in this area, and I don't think there's a better way to say it. It was it was really interesting. Yeah, I have like because uh, I have it on the on the Kindle, but it's uh, like just entire pages are highlighted. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in a way that like I tried to get fancy then and I was like, I'll change the color of the highlight. So it looks like I have a different meaning for highlighting this one, but I don't because she does, she says a lot of things, but she does say them concisely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just so much to cover and you'd think with the, now granted for anyone who's not familiar with this book, um, a good portion of it is made up of games and exercises that Viola ascent just, basically came up with over a 40-year period and uh, put into the book in different areas depending on what the concentration of the game might be for. But even in the book itself, she's like, well, yeah, this game I made for six to eight-year-olds, but you could adjust it for adults and things are maneuverable and, and uh, uh, well, malleable. Things are malleable and can be adjusted however someone might need them for their own purposes. She was pretty flexible that way. Uh, some things not so flexible, but in other ways, very flexible. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's so funny. It's the, the language you're even using about it right now, because I take it, this is the first time you've read this book, right? This is the first time I've read it. Now, I, I had heard of it um, 
And if our podcast listeners uh, heard my last episode with David Quinn about method or madness, they probably heard me reference my wife, Shannon. She is an an actor, director, artist, improviser, and she read this book cover to cover in graduate school. So I had heard of it and seen some of the games played, but uh, I had this was my first opportunity to really read it, which I appreciate the choice, Becky, because it was awesome. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. I'm really yeah. glad. Yeah, I got introduced to this in grad school as well. Um, so it was one of the major things that we weren't given the book as like a required reading. Um, mm. But within the program at Emerson, uh, I went to Emerson College, um, within the program, they, you know, were like, pick a, a theater, uh, you know, expert uh, who has written a book and read the book. <laughs> and I chose this one because I have a, a bit of an improv background. Um, and I was like, yeah, okay, that one sounds great. And then I was like, like, okay, cool. Now I see what I need to do. And I'm into this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because... Yeah, she just, it's, she makes theater accessible, um, which is part of what my uh, entire being in theater is. So I really well, enjoyed that. Well, that actually leads me to some of my first questions about the book um, and your, your thoughts. The accessibility of theater. Now, she makes some pretty bold statements at the beginning, one of which, which I was sort of... St- not stunned, but when I read it, I was like, I don't know if I've seen it written this way before, but she essentially says, uh, no one can teach anyone anything. It's like literally sentence in chapter one, I think she says that. Um, how how do you feel about that statement? It's so funny because you read that and like it's, it's the first, and you're like, come on, like that you're just disregarding my entire career, right? You're like yeah. taking away, as a teacher even, I'm like, then why do I exist? What's my point? Right, exactly. What's, what's my purpose? But then you go <laughs> on to read further, you know, the things she's saying, and it kind of makes sense when she breaks it down that, like, you're hoping, and your her hope as an educator, I think, was to just be a guiding force. She has this very, like, guiding force feel to all of her, her exercise and everything. Like, even, like, I know we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but, like, the side coaching, right? But she, she talks about a power struggle, right? She talks about, like, the hierarchy of the teacher and the student and the, and the director and the actor and, and all these things. And she basically blends that or, or uh, blurs that line and, and has this idea that, like, there should be no teacher, really. There should be no student. Everyone is a student in the room. Everyone can learn something. And uh, everyone's going to teach you something. So the teacher's right. going to teach and the students are going to teach you. And the students yes. are going to learn and the teacher's going to learn. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She, she, I think, and maybe that was part of the point of the statement is to make it so provocative that you're like, wait, what? And you really want to keep trying to figure out what she actually means. Now, you know, she does, I think, make a blanket statement of like, that goes for the arts and the sciences and everything. It's like, well, I mean... I don't know about neurosurgery on that one, but at the very least, I can get on board for the, like, I don't want a neurosurgeon to be like, well, let's try this. I'm going to intuitively figure this out. And it's like, eh, I don't know, which we'll get into her talks, her thoughts about intuition later, which I think are awesome. Um, but yeah, that no one can teach anyone anything statement. That was pretty, uh, that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, but then the other bold statement that she has, which I'm very on board with is, Anyone can learn theater. Anyone can learn improv uh, and performance. 
Um, and she she talks a lot about that. But what are your thoughts on that on that statement as well? That rang so true to me, even as a grad student, but like before then, even um, that. I, so, I mean, my background with theater is that I I was a pretty shy kid. I was very stoic. I, you know, for whatever reason, I, I was not outgoing when I was a child. Um, and when I found theater again, or found theater really, um, I was like, oh, I get to use my voice. Oh, I get to be crazy and silly and goofy and, and make choices and people don't berate you for those choices. And that's, this is great. This is amazing. So essentially I had found what I like to refer to as my home, right? Theater became my home. It became my comfort place. And as much as I don't think that everyone has that same experience with theater and, and I don't think that everyone belongs in a theater all the time, everyone at some point in their life can absolutely act if they need to. Everyone at some point in their life can absolutely improvise. And this idea that it's only for like the elite, the ones who know Shakespeare or whatever, I so hard, like fastly push against that because I, I can't stand that, that thought process. Like mm. even, even Shakespeare, right, was supposed to be for the everyman. Right. Like it was performed for kings and queens, of course, but like his language and what he even did on it, and we can go on that tangent on a different, you know, a different podcast for sure. Totally. <laughs> but it's this idea that like, it, it was never meant to be for the elite. Um, and it was, it was always meant to be for everywhere. That's why community theaters exist, right? Sure, not everybody makes a career out of it, but community theaters are there so that people can play. Right. And and actually bringing up community theaters, she talks about that in the book. She has an entire section uh, near the end essentially dedicated to community directors when she says, you know, she references professionals, but she gears a lot of it towards uh, people who aren't necessarily experienced with directing. She says, here's um, and if and, and if you're a community theater director or a high school or middle school theater director or somebody who works with actors who aren't necessarily professional or just do it for fun or on the side or something like that, I highly recommend those chapters near the end. That's that's a big that'll be a big help for you. And I would love to talk to you, Becky, about her rehearsal thoughts a little later um, because, you know, there's the ideal and the, what people want to do. And then there's the constraints of reality. Um, but, uh, we'll get into that in a little bit, but again, if you're listening and you're somebody who is a community theater director, or even, I mean, even if you are a professional director, I would recommend checking out those, those chapters and getting a little more insight into what someone has to share. Even if you don't completely agree with their style, more than likely there's going to be some information in them that you find Helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that she is as pragmatic as Anne Bogart. You know what I mean? So like, sure. if you need to, I mean, you don't write a theater theory book without having thought of every angle. You just don't. Well, that's why it's probably 360 pages. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, you know, and like you said, it's over like 40 years of experience. So the reason that she can take apart the puzzle pieces so much and, and be so systematic with how she thinks things should run uh, is impressive. I would, I, not to go too, not to deviate too far from the preface because we're only in chapter one, but right. like I would have loved to 
study underneath her, you know what I mean? See her in action and what she actually does. I do occasionally watch like YouTube videos or whatever of her work. Um, but I would love to have like directly studied underneath her because I think that a lot of what she suggests, like you said, I think it's, it's hard, um, you know, when we get into the rehearsal process and stuff, we would talk more about that, but it's hard to recreate the environment that she exactly wants there to be. Um, or says that there should be and I understand why those environment places need to be there but well maybe this is for later in the in the conversation but I but I do think that it's it's it would be interesting to see her navigate the problems of the world today that theater goers go through and see if she would still be able to speak to the same thing like I think she was speaking at this point as someone who had been working from uh from a specific brick and mortar theater right she had the space she had the and like all those things and not everyone has that access so oh yeah yeah and um that's actually something interesting about the whole premise of this podcast even is to understand what some of these theories which you know if you want to go back to stan the man over a hundred years ago over a hundred years ago um and then others that could be even older or whatever the one of the premises of this is to try to update if we need to um, or to see how this theory still contributes to our acting style. I'm thinking more specifically for Americans uh, because a lot of these things are um, were written by Americans. Um, so it's um, it, it's it's a way to separate the wheat from the chaff which we have to do, I think, every so often and update our 20th century acting theories to the 21st century. And like you said, a changing world. What would still work? What might be different? Now, um, I would, I'm going to, that'll be definitely near the end. We'll do a little assessment for what you think uh, uh, about uh, in terms of, that was one of the questions I sent you in the, uh, in the, second, in the second email. Um, yeah, but anyway... Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I will go if you let me. If you let me, I will like you. Like, and let's talk about this. And let's talk about this. And let's Great. That's that's perfect. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stop you. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> that might be uh, your downfall. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, talking about her. Well, I, I mean, you know, technique. I don't know what word she would prefer. Um, honestly, technique might work fine. But talking about her technique, um we have these tenants that she uses to support this technique. Some of the big ones like experiencing and addressing approval, disapproval, the ideas behind what talent is, where the knowledge of what we're doing should come from. And for her, it's very much, she seems to very much have the thought of we all have the information inside of us it's just a matter of unlocking it um do you is that does that sound close-ish to her to her to her thinking to her thinking like the 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 information that we need to solve the problems of the stage are inside of us it's just a matter of unlocking it in a way through the intuitive Um, yeah yeah. I would I would say definitely because she yeah that is her main focus is uh, not main focus but like she puts a lot of weight on intuitiveness and the and the reacting in the moment um, and that doesn't come from uh, not 
already having that in you, I think. And I, I have to say her focus on the intuitive is really cool. I, I wrote down some of her definitions for stuff, which I thought was very helpful. The first, uh, in this first chapter, you have uh, her definition for talent, which is essentially a greater capacity for experiencing. And her conclusion to that is therefore we have to increase everyone's capacity for experiencing like they have to increase that capacity and what is experiencing and that is that like that immersion into the environment that that involvement with the environment and experiencing is made up of the intellectual the physical and the intuitive and then she zeroes in on the intuitive she's like this is where this is the key is intuitive um I just was kind of blown away by that breakdown from step to step to step in terms of sort of the foundation of where this acting essence comes from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it's 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 so hard not to read these things and also then get incredibly like philosophical and psychological about the human mind and Viola Spolin would probably hate this podcast. <laughs> she would hate it. She'd be like, she why are you doing it. this? Stop analyzing my work, just read the book. Because well because it I, I agree with her hundred percent. And and I would say mm -hmm. uh, I would say even further, right, with the part that she's leaving out or the part that she's I think purposely leaving out, right? Because she needs to keep it about theater, is that those are all things that I think as human beings, right? We just, we all need to uh, experience more, right? If you live in a bubble your entire life, um, then no, your intu then your intuitiveness, your, your gut reactions are going to be completely, uh, completely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, determined by, by, what your environment is, right? Your gut reactions are going to be about what you've heard people say to you for centuries, uh, for centuries, or for for you know decades. Um, that's that's what your intuitiveness is going to be. If you experience more, if you open yourself up to the world, if you travel, if you venture, if you go into different environments, then obviously you're going to learn more. So your intuitiveness or your gut reactions to things are going to be a little bit different than that's just been living in a bubble their entire life. So ultimately, in order to act, you must become a better person. Ah, look at that. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That, um, and that's, that's, that's something else because, I mean, just bringing it back to the podcast for a second, the, as <laughs> no, I said, the point, well, no, 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 the, 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 one of the goals is to help people who are involved in theater, but that's a great piece of information for people outside of theater, or even those who have to defend the existence of theater and our existence as artists. That's a really interesting point that we hear, instead of having to travel to, I don't know, Marrakesh to understand the world a little bit better, uh, not that I'm you know, bashing Marrakesh, I super wanna go there and visit it, it looks beautiful, um, but the the idea that you can expand your intuitive knowledge and your intuitive well yeah your intuitive knowledge simply within a theater workshop you know you don't have to travel around the world you i recommend but if you can't travel around the world not everybody can do that you can 
find it maybe in your backyard or maybe in, uh, you know, the local school or a local theater, something like that. It's um, it's one more thing that we strive to make ourselves a little better with, not just saying, oh, theater creates more empathy, which it super does. But it also improves your intuition, <laughs> your intuitiveness. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of the so I mean, just looking at this from an educator's perspective and working with students. Uh, now, I have worked with students from ages five to ninety nine. Um, or maybe older. I didn't ever ask the elderly how old they were. I'm sure that they were. You should start clocking that though. I mean, I if you should. had a, if you had a centen, cent, what is it? Centenarian, centarian, yeah. one of those words. <laughs> if you had a person who is a hundred years or older, who's got three digits on their years of life, I, that would be an interesting thing. I, you should it start clocking be. that. <laughs> it would be. I should. I Why should. do I have to put my age down? It's just, <laughs> we're, we're, you know. Requirement. Yeah, no, no reason. No reason. Just need to know. Um, just for my resume. No, but I. So I have worked with with every age, right? And and the one thing that I love more than anything else about theater workshops um, or, or teaching theater, even, is that extra bits that you learn through learning theater, right? So like through learning how to play, because that's really what theater is, right? We're just playing on a stage. Through learning how to play. Uh, you are learning how to compromise. You're learning how to work in a collective. You're learning how to, uh, you're learning self-esteem, which is a big one with kids. You know, that's what we need to learn. You're learning confidence. You're learning how to public speak. You're learning uh, intuitiveness. You're learning, God, the list goes on and on and on, right? You're learning all of these life skills that are so vitally important to being a human being um, and living within a society that it is, it is, I will defend theater arts and education until my dying day because all of, I mean, you just do, you just learn those things and, and through theater games, right? You don't even have to do a play. You don't even have to have a script in your hand. You can learn these things through theater games and we call them theater games because we're asking you to let go of, you know, and be unencumbered and just play. And that's actually, um, well, I'm going to ask two questions because one, you made me think of this when you were talking about the environment, you know, the classroom, things like that. But the other one I want to get to first, which is um, the X area, which when I saw that, I was like, what? And it's just kind of it's a term that I've never seen before. Um, and I after reading through it and, and looking at it a little bit, I think she talks about how the X area is the source of the intuitive um is that is that correct on that one i am actually not certain what the x area is I'm not she sure literally anything. references it like in the beginning and then rarely talks about it ever again uh, the only reason i bring it up is because if someone comes across that term i want them to be like what are we talking about for anyone listening when you come across the the term X area, don't let it throw you off. Um, I, it, it seems to be, and I was just ch checking my notes here. I took, Becky and I both took many, many notes on this book. And Becky has already worked with this book for a while, and she still took notes. Um, but uh, Spolin talks about it as uh, a place for the intuition, essentially kind of like 
she says that intuition is a little too ill-defined. So it has meanings in other trainings. So for her, she talks about the X area as the intuitive. Um, it's beyond the intellect, memory, mind, kind of like a hidden wellspring. But as I mentioned, she talks about it in like the first chapter and then mentions in, mentions it like two more times in the whole book. So I don't know what the, I don't know why, I mean, I, I get why she talked about it, but then dropped it. <laughs> then she dropped it. Yeah. So, yeah. so sorry, my original, my whole original thing was that I have the first edition now. So I don't think it, it, it doesn't even mention it in the first edition. So you bringing it, up, it like rings a bell, but it's not important enough. I mean, it's important, but it's not explained enough, I guess you should say, in the book. No, I, I remember it from the third edition. Yeah, and she talks about that in the prefaces to the editions. I, I don't remember if she added it for the third edition or the second edition, one of them. She ends up changing the intuitive to the X area. But I, I have, well, Shannon technically has the the third edition and and even in that she she does talk about it but it feels like halfway through writing she was like this term sucks i'm gonna just go with intuitive they know what i yeah. mean yeah well i think that it's very telling that it's not in the first edition and then it is yeah. in the third edition like somewhere yeah somewhere in there she thought maybe she needed to make the switch to make it explain be explained better i i guess to make intuitive or yeah to make the intuitive in her technique stand out from the use of intuitive in other people's work but uh, yeah well because she does say at one point um and i don't know exactly where it is i know i highlighted it that doesn't mean anything um where she said intuitiveness i mean i guess it must be in the in the intuitive section uh but she says intuitiveness uh shouldn't be overused so that must be exactly what it is that you're you're thinking sure gave it and gave the subsection of intuitiveness a second term to try to differentiate between the two yeah yeah that makes sense and as you might have gathered from listening the uh, the first edition of this was written in the 60s like 1968 is that yeah I true think so. yeah 1968 around there uh so a while ago and then she uh released a second edition with some changes and i think she added some games and updated some things in 1983 and then the third edition was released i believe in 1999 but that was sort of spearheaded by her son and uh someone else who who kind of put her work together because she died in 94 if i'm remembering correctly she died in the 90s and i think she passed away before the third edition was released um so there are some but they had been like working on it so there are um some updates which which those updates i i really appreciate because one of the things they talked about was having more inclusive language. They even then they recognized that the book written in the 60s had gone through 30 years of uh, difference in social climate. So it needed some updating. And instead of just saying he, 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 he for every actor, which is something that in our last podcast, Robert Lewis, we talked about that a little bit. He taught, he used he for all the actors until he was talking about stage beauty and then he switched it suddenly to she. Nah. Um, yeah, that was from his, I mean, Method or Madness was his, um, 
his lectures in 1950s. It was like 1957. So that was something, I mean, and they just did that method of madness from the 50s and they didn't, they never updated that. But Spolin updates, updated hers, which I think is, is really great. And they do, it's still binary with his and her, but at the very least, it was more, a little more inclusive in terms of gender roles. Yeah. Um, so I it's funny because that. that was one of the questions you sent me too, was like, what obstacles do you think is here? And I just wrote down he and underlined it <laughs> because that was the major thing in this edition, which by the way, is 1963. Is, 1963. Uh, when, 1963, so the early 60s even. Um, yeah. But she even, it's funny because, so she does use he, a lot right to describe the actor he should do this he should think that way in in the first edition in the first edition yes um and then she does i do remember that there was an update uh to the third edition when i read that one um i do remember it being his or her uh but she doesn't use he like when when she can i still see her trying to like use they or use group right yes. she tries she still tries to make the individual part of the group so yes. that is i mean and that's kind of her whole thing is like, you're not alone. And if you're not, you're an individual, but you're not an individual. You're part of a, a bigger mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and let's, you know what, let's move into that section or to those, to that area as well. Um, I would love to be able to go through each chapter and break down the different ideas, but you could literally spend a semester doing that. So yes. we're going to, uh, I'm going to try to, yeah, right. <laughs> and we're, That's so, true. <laughs> I, spent, I spent a unit, I spent a unit, not a semester. Yeah. But how long was a unit? Like a, a month, uh, a few a weeks, month, yeah. about a month. I mean, as much as I would love to talk to you three times a week for the next month, uh, surprisingly, despite everything that's going on, neither of us have the time for that. <laughs> no, we do not. No. Um, but I'd, I'd love to talk about the environment of the workshop um, and I think a bit the rehearsal as well. She talks about this idea of environment and atmosphere um, quite a bit throughout whenever she's talking about the workshops because she focuses on workshops for the first part of the book then she moves into and again this is for the third edition i don't know how many differences there are between first and third uh but it, in the beginning for the third the first part is mostly about workshops the second part is focusing a little bit more on children and then the third part focuses on the formal play as she calls it directing the formal play um but talking a little bit focusing on workshops and I know you've used this work in your own classes that you've taught um, and I think a discussion about the workshop atmosphere or environment will translate to a rehearsal atmosphere and environment as well um, what what do you do uh, or what do you take from this book to set up your environments in classes or or workshops so, I actually have a pretty anecdotal story about this um, Perfect. Beca uh, because, so when I was teaching in a classroom, um, you know, not a teaching artist, but an actual theater teacher, right? Um, it's stupid dif differentiation, but it's there. Um, and I, so I was teaching in St. John on, uh, on the Virgin Islands, uh, or in the Virgin Islands, and uh, at, a, at a private school called Gift Hill School. I don't know if I should drop the name, but I did. Um, but Gift Hill School, it's a, it's a great private school there and there was a the reason I was there was for uh connection purposes a friend of mine that I went to college with uh you know 
worked with the theater in Vermont that had this like program set up to send theater teachers down to teach the school. Very convoluted. I mean, we could talk about that forever, but I was there as the theater teacher. And then I got on the island and I wasn't given a classroom. And I was like, what? What do you mean? I, I don't have a classroom. And they were like, we don't have a classroom. Now, the school, uh, Gifto School is a small school. The population from uh, preschool to 12th grade when I was there was 156 students. That's the entire preschool to 12th grade. Oh, man, a lot. Small island. Yeah, there, it's a small island. There's 4,000 people total on the island, or 4,900, something like that, like wow. somewhere in there. Um, and, uh, you know, the private school itself is, is expensive, so not every student goes there. Uh, and there's a lower campus and an upper campus. So the upper campus, which was sixth grade through 12th grade, which was where my main uh, classroom was, classroom, uh, they didn't have a spare classroom to give me. So originally they were like, great, so you'll just teach right here in the auditorium. Now the auditorium was the center of the school, um, which is just where the bleachers were, where they would have like pep rallies or where when we did do uh, performances, that was like our stage. Uh, but there were classrooms all around it. So I was teaching upper level junior and senior theater classes. Um, and they wanted me to teach it in this very open, very high risk environment. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I can't do that. It's not fair of me to ask these students to put themselves in an emotional state uh, when they're doing a scene or when we're doing an exercise or when you're know, what, doing whatever. Uh, for you to and have everyone under the sun be able to hear them or see them because then I learned very very quickly the importance of the environment because we started doing an exercise at one time and teachers who had like it was elective uh, class period so the core teachers or a few of the core teachers didn't have a class so they would just come walk into the space and sit down and start watching the kids or they would interact with them as they're trying to act on our stage space and I was like you're literally taking away everything that I'm doing and you're putting these kids on a performative stage that they, I'm not asking them to be performative right now. I'm asking them to explore their feelings and explore, you know, their, their understanding of the world. And I'm asking them to be deep and I'm asking them to be intuitive. And if you are coming in and asking and, and basically being like, Hey, dance for me, then like, then what's, what's the point of me being here? I was pissed. Yeah. I was pissed. So I ended up like, I, I almost made signs, um, but I also was the newest teacher on the block. Um, I was technically a subcontractor. Um, so I wasn't even technically employed through the school other than through a subcontract. So I didn't have a lot of power. Um, so there's a lot of politics that were being played that I as the teacher uh, could not overcome in order to benefit my students. Hmm. And so I almost made signs and then I was like, that's not gonna go over well. <laughs> Yeah. That was like, quiet, please don't come in here. Um, and I ended up being able to talk to one of the other teachers eventually. I, I went to administration and they were like, well, there's nowhere else for you to go. And I was like, you have to, okay. Then like change my period, you know what I mean? Then change my period so I can be in a different classroom. Uh, but I ended up talking to one of the other teachers um, who was, classroom was like right in there or whatever. And she was like, oh, just use my classroom. I have a free period. I can do that literally anywhere. And I was like, thank you. Oh, nice. Thank you. So then I was able to have a space where I could close the door and like the kids were able to be free. And, and, and for juniors and seniors, a lot of that is like, I don't care what language you use in my classroom. 
Like if you're going to swear, whatever, we've all heard it. You know what I mean? Sure. You're 17 and 18 years old. I don't care. And so when I close the door, like immediately they're all like, this fuck that. Let's do it. I was like, cool, man. Whatever, whatever makes you feel loose and free. I don't give a shit. Like that's fine by me. Right. Um, and so that I think, and, and a large portion of that I was, especially during that teaching year, that was my first year teaching theater on my own. Um, and during that, I held Viola's Bowling book so close to my chest to help me through that first year. And, and when I, I was so devastated when I got there and I was like, oh, I don't even have the environment. Like I don't have the space and I'm being asked by administration and by, uh, you know, my technical employees. So the, the theater in Vermont that I was working through to kind of create these miracles and like, and, and teach these kids theater. But like ultimately in any theater program, unfortunately, especially in the school, it, the ultimate goal is to get to like a performance, right? Like you have to, in order to quantify that they learned anything, it's whether or not they can act on the stage. Which is interesting because when you talk about the teaching of children, I use teaching because I don't know what else Spolin would call it, but like when you use when you use a workshop or classroom setting for people to learn theater, she talks a lot about product versus process. Mm -hmm. And for her, process is incredibly important. It's not that she doesn't care about product, but the process is, if the process is corrupted, the product's not going to matter. And that's really awesome that you, I mean, it sucks that you had to go through that, but it, it it's a lesson that I think teachers, especially those listening uh, here, should take to heart with theater in terms of you need to create the environment. And if the environment's not there, then you have to do what you can to fight for that environment because it's not it's not just about your ability to teach. It's not about that. It's about their ability to learn. And if you have somebody intruding on the group, that means that those students have gone from a process mentality to a performance mentality, whether that's conscious or unconscious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that because, uh, like I said, like having the teachers walk through and sit down or other students or whoever else was just coming into the school that day, right, donors or whatever, sit down and sit in, in the classroom, like I, we would have to stop the process. I would have to be like, hey, this is a closed rehearsal, essentially. Or I would have to be like, hey, does everyone know, you know, such and such donor? Great. Do you want to say hi to all the kids? Great. Anyone have any questions? No? Cool. Let's move on. But just to be able to say, this is another person in our environment. We're going to include them in this environment. And like, or this person is going to be here. We just kind of need to deal with that. Uh, and now we can move past it. But yeah. it, it definitely, it, it's adding an audience. It's adding an audience to a, a, a workshop situation where an audience isn't welcome just yet, because especially young actors um, and, and young students, right? They don't have all of the tools in their toolkit to be able to just kind of work past that. Like they, they're not, they're not ready for dinner theater. That's not why they're here, right? Like right, this, right. They're here to learn the tools so that they can eventually get to do dinner theater if that's what they want to do. But like, we're not there yet, you know? Right, right. Um, I will say, just to, as a moment of proud uh, and pride to go off on the on the uh, the fighting for the space. 
So uh-huh. the program that I was involved in, um, there were there were teachers before me, and there was there's going to be a teacher after me. Um, they had asked me to extend my contract, and I had said no. I had, I had reached my limit personally um, of, of playing the political game. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, uh, and so a, a, another friend of a friend was coming down to be the teacher, and I negotiated his contract for him essentially. Uh, before he even got there. And I was like, hey, when Marcel gets down here, uh, he needs to have a space. He needs to have a two-year contract. He needs to have his own personal, like, and I, a lot of things for his own personal well-being. And I was like, and you need to treat him like a teacher. <laughs> like, done and done. That's what needs to happen. And I met with him, uh, like, a couple months after he had started, because uh, there was a, a side of the program where, like, former teachers would go down and help work on whatever. Again, convoluted. Uh, but I was down on the island with him at one point, and he was like, looked at me, and he was like, man, you rocked the boat. And I was like, I did, and I'm not sorry, and you're welcome. And rock the boat is a teaching technique for six- to eight-year-olds in the book. What? It's almost like it's my entire teaching career. <laughs> I actually love that description of rock the boat in terms of blocking um, I'm definitely going to steal that, not just for six to eight year olds. I'm literally going to use that for just about any age group, especially ones who are new to theater, because uh, it's such an awesome image of imagine you're in a canoe or a, a, a rowboat. And, you know, how do you keep it from tipping over? Imagine the stage is a rowboat. How do you keep it from tipping over? And then they all kind of like intuitively, hopefully spread out. Or when do you want to rock the boat? It's really it's a that was something that I really enjoyed in terms of how to communicate the material to uh, to kids, especially. Yeah. Um, I did have a question, because one thing that I know I struggle with sometimes when I'm teaching is I can get a little lectury. Like, I talk a little too much. You've met me. I talk a lot. You have a podcast now. I have a podcast now. So now I can just do it and nobody can judge me. <laughs> it's literally the art form for long-winded people. You've That's done right. it. You made right. it to the mountaintop. Right. Cause I can because I can talk as much as I want and then I can edit it to make it seem like I'm not talking that much. Um, I love but, it. how would you um I don't know if you ever ran into that sort of challenge trying to make sure you weren't lecturing, um, especially on ideas for Spolin. How would you introduce an idea to a group without getting into a lecture circuit? Um, is there, is there something you would like, is there a particular concept of hers, whether it's approval, disapproval or focus or, or something like that, that you would talk about, or would you just jump right into games? Um, so that, I don't know how much of this is Spolin, um, related, uh, honestly. And I don't know how much, I know that this, that's what we're talking about, but I, it's hard for me as a teacher also not to like fall back on my other teachings. And I mean, there's a reason I went to two years of grad school. Um, and I just truly try to, I also am long-winded and I have to lecture a lot and I can see the glaze going over my students' faces sometimes. And yeah, then I'm I've like, that. oh, I'm done talking. <laughs> You're not with me. <laughs> and I think in my, in my years of teaching now, uh, and by years, I mean like, you know, five, um, I have been trying to, uh, ask more questions and talk less. 
And I don't know what Viola's Golden would particularly say about that. Cause I know her whole thing is side coaching, right? Like she doesn't, she's, she like explains the game in like, even in the book, right? She explains the games in like a paragraph. Yes. And then it's like, and this is how you side coach. And I'm like, wait, wait, but I don't think I fully understand the game that you just presented in front of me. Uh, Which seems to be part of her point as well. She's like, here are the, here are the boundaries of the game. Um, I think she, she has a section, I can't remember what chapter it is. It might be one, but she's got a se- section called control or, or it's not, yeah, she talks about control and she's like, these are the boundaries of the game. You got to know the boundaries so that you can play it. If there are no rules, then there's no game. And I think part of that is like, I, she, she seems to keep things vague so that people don't try to do it right. They just kind of go with their gut or intuitive yeah. or the X area, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that is, I mean, it sort of throws the teacher into the fire as well in some ways. Cause I know for me as a teacher, one of my, one of my biggest fears, one of my biggest fears is I'm going to break a student. Like I'm going to accidentally like break their spirit for theater okay. or like their love of theater. Um, Cause I've seen it happen. I literally at my old high school um, there, I don't know if he's still there or whatever, but there was a, a, a teacher who taught theater and I was talking to a student about Shakespeare one day who was in the musical. And I said, oh, my God, Shakespeare and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, I don't really like Shakespeare. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, OK, well, why don't you like it? And she's like, well, Mr. So-and-so just loved it so much and he made me feel bad. So I like didn't I don't like it. And I was like, somebody you shouldn't as a teacher, you shouldn't love something so much that you make people hate it. Like that's like if she was like, I just don't like Shakespeare, like Gary Oldman, who is, a, I think, a great actor, kind of a dick in real life, but a great actor. He freaking hates Shakespeare, hates it. And he's just like, I just don't like it. And it's like, OK, well, cool. That's fine. But for a student who like hasn't experienced it to like have a teacher just ruin it for you. That's what I'm always afraid of doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I get, that's the whole thing. That's, mm, I'm like, oh, it was yeah. like getting so mad when you're telling that story of like my eyes. Yeah. Because it's, it is, that is, I, and I'm right there with you. That is also a great fear of mine as well. It's like kids will find it boring or they won't have fun or they won't understand the, like they won't understand, you know, how this game that I'm playing also relates to like the stage and also relates to their life and also relates to like all these other things. Um, so I know a lot of times in my teaching, even with children, I think I get a little too heady and I get a okay. little too like, like, I'm like, and how does this, you know, and, and how does this relate to your life? <laughs> you know, and I like ask kids that, but also kids are very smart. And yeah. so I know a lot of like, I've had people observe my classes before. Um, and I've had, I've, they run the gamut, right? I've had people be like, Hey, you handle, you work with children very well. And this is amazing. Um, and I've had people go, well, I think your language is a little too old for them. And mm-hmm. I think that this is happening. And I think this is happening. And to those people, I always go, who are you listening? Right. <laughs> because, and that's not to say that I'm perfect, because they definitely have off days, right? I mean, I'm sure. only human. Um, and, but I think that, like, to those people, I'm like, sometimes when I say to kids, you know, hey, how does this relate to your life? 
they go, oh, well, you know, I had a dog once who ran around and then they bit me and da da da. And it's not a, or whatever the story is, it's not a direct correlation, but to them, that makes sense. So now you need to find out as the teacher why A and B makes sense for the kid. But yeah. so when I hear these stories, though, I mean, to go back to, to your, your story about people not liking Shakespeare and things like that, it's so frustrating to me because what that tells me is what that teacher. And I've, I've had those teachers as well. It's kind of why I don't like Shakespeare. Yep. Um, I have other reasons now too, but I, we have a lovely <laughs> relationship, Shakespeare and I. Um, but like it's, the, what that tells me is that teacher or that it, it has a love for their love for Shakespeare. So they love the idea that they know more than you about Shakespeare. And that actually brings up another point that I wanted to address with Spolin which is the idea of the teacher not as the dogmatic, wise, knower of all things. Like, that's not... The, the teacher is not where students get their, their knowledge from. The teacher is a facilitator or a guide. And that's really important for essentially the crux of Spolin's... Um, environment it seems mm -hmm. like if you have somebody there and that's not it's not just the teacher she she addresses that a bit in the book about working with students who might be want to be the leader all the mm -hmm. time how do you not not curb that but help students recognize that sometimes it's great to be a leader sometimes games require that but not every game needs someone to be a leader um and that that like focus on group agreement. So this idea, this, this constant idea that uh, Spolin herself says in the book, techniques change. Technique is a way uh, in theater of communication. Techniques of theater are the techniques of communication and communication changes over time. So she she writes that in the book. I know I sound really smart saying that, but I'm I'm looking at my note because it's right in front of me. So that's Spolin's words, not mine. Total dis full disclosure. I'm not that smart, but <laughs> but it's right there. And and so a technique you can't have a dogmatic technique because techniques are constantly changing, and that's something that uh, teachers, especially teachers in theater, need to be aware of because there are a lot of teachers out there who I believe, and I, I am trying my best not to be one of them, who, like, they've done the same thing for 20 years. Like, that's their technique. They're not going to change. Like, same shit, different audience. But, I mean, 20 years ago, even from now, things were a lot different just in the environment itself, you know? Uh, the communication of our society has altered. Um, and we need to represent that in theater in, in a lot of ways. Um. <laughs> Giving, you snaps. Giving you snaps for that. But I'm glad you brought up that, that point of the teachers who were just like, well, this, this is, I know this and I, you know, simply because I know it and you will love it. It's like, no, nah, it's not how that works, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between teaching with passion and, uh, being passionate about knowing things, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's different. Yeah, you can be passionate about something, but then you're not a great teacher of it because you you're 
you're just more into the idea of the fact that you know it. Yes, yes. And I, I've fallen into, I mean, I'm passionate when I teach classes, but I've had the same experiences you've had where I'm like really passionate about it and I realize I'm talking about it and I just see the eyes glaze over. I'm like, ooh, I have to do something different. You are, I'm killing you, aren't I? I have to fix this. Um, We have to move, we have to move. (laughs) We have to move around. Everybody get up. Um, But that's, again, these, these, this idea of the atmosphere itself within the classroom, the workshop, um, or the environment, the environment of the workshop, which has the atmosphere of the teacher, that, that passionate member of the group who can help facilitate, who, uh, at one point in her book, she says, uh, the reason that the teacher might be up there or the guide or whatever you want to call this person might be up there is because they have experience and they've seen things done. They see a problem and they've seen a hundred different ways that it can be solved. So they just know from experience what can happen, Mm -hmm. but we have to be open to a student coming up with the hundred and first way to solve exactly. it. Yeah. So kind of, yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, and so I will say, um, yes. just, you know, talking within that theory of, I, I, I love it. I hold it very near and dear to my heart. It's how I teach. It's how I direct. I do never walk into a room expecting to be the smartest person in the room. I just don't. It's, I, I just don't. And that's not a lack of confidence on my end. Um, it's, it's that I truly believe what, in what like Viola Spolin says, that it's a collective, right? It's, it's collaborating fully. Um, and, and I don't have the, I may not have the right answer as the director. I'm not, you know, uh, I actually just did a, a, a directed stage or staged Zoom reading of Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said at the top of my, my directing statement to everyone was I, you know, I gave my concept for how I wanted people to act. Even that, you either take it or you don't. I can't, you know what I mean? I can give you my concept of it. You're going to interpret that however you want. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you're going with my vision because otherwise what's my purpose? But that was a non-paying gig. So also, eh, doesn't really matter. Right. And, uh, and, and, I, and at the top, I said, listen, I said, I am not one of those people who like follow Shakespeare for his scansion. I'm not going to tell you what the iambic pentameter is. I'm not going to tell you that this emotion has to be felt on this downbeat. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, I know that those people exist. I know that, that the scholars have done work like that. That's not who I am. And I understand that in this room right now, room, Zoom room, there are people who are smarter than I when it comes to that stuff. So if you're somebody who needs that in order to, to figure out what emotion you need to be feeling in this moment, and I will be able to tell that you don't quite understand what you're saying, everyone will. If you need that to, to do that, then let's turn to the people who are smarter than that. And you just give up that, that a little bit of, of, you give up that control yeah. to be able to say, there are smarter people in this room than me. I'm here to see the bigger picture. Yeah. And that's, you know, and just defining what my role is in that room instead of letting them have a preconceived notion of what a director's role is. Because then the director becomes an authoritarian. And exactly. that is, especially with Spolin, something that needs to be invo- avoided. I mean, I, I agree with that as well. There, there are times when the director has to make the decision or help, help move the group towards something. Um, and she talks about this sort of cyclical give and take uh, of the director presenting 
a problem for the group to solve. The group does what they can to solve the problem. The director takes those little bits and gives them back to the actors. And it's sort of this give and take that goes back and forth. And I think that's um, that's useful. That's not just for a director. That is for, I think, a teacher as well. That's for um, an actor. When you're in it, you have to do that give and take. Yeah. I would even extend it as far as to say like a manager, right? If you're a manager, oh, yeah. if you're if you're the leader of a task force, <laughs> if you oh. are in any leadership position, you know what I mean? Like, I know she doesn't go far into that um, as much as like other theater historians, or not historians, um, theater, what's the Theorists? Word? Experts? Purists? Yeah, purists. Theorists, experts. experts uh... uh, Methodists? Methodist is, I don't think Methodist is right. Methodologist? That's a religion. Methodologist? Methodology, whatever. We know what we're saying. We're so smart. I'm so glad we have a platform. People who write them books about theater. That's what she is. We so smart. Yeah. But those, I mean, she doesn't, but there have been others, right? Other Mm -hmm. experts or other people who have written books who have have tried to make it more broad. Like Christine Linkletter, for example, um, uses a focuses a lot of her work, not just on theater, but how you can also like push it over into the corporate world. Right. Um, And, and yeah. And so, but it's because those lines all blur. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Improvisation for the Theater featuring Becky Fleckner. I hope you enjoyed our first hour of discussing Viola Spolin's book and that you'll return for episode two next week. Thank you as always for tuning in. Please join the conversation next week on Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast.